and welcome to a summer vacation uh, edition of Little Gold Men. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Betty Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson, and you are hearing my voice at the top of the hour because Katie Rich uh, is on vacay and Richard Lawson is not yet back from Cannes, but fear not, we have two incredible fan favorites back by popular demand. Uh, it's David Canfield and Chris Murphy. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hi, wow, what an introduction. I know, fan favorites. I've always wanted to be a fan favorite. It's never happened for me before. The dream is alive on Little Gold Men. No, we, we love having you guys on the show. Uh, you've been great recent additions to the lineup. So uh, we're so happy to have you here to do sort of a post-Emmy nom week, deeper dive look into some of the Emmy conversation, as well as we have some, uh, some film festival stuff to talk about. And also... Ted Lasso season two is here. Uh, it's a national holiday. So uh, so we'll be talking about that as well, our first impressions of, of the new season, et cetera. But I want to kick off by throwing to you, David, um, with some of this film festival news uh, that we might be excited about. Let's start with Venice. What do, what do we know out of Venice right now? Sure. So Venice has announced their opening film, which for people who follow things like the Venice Film Festival are probably very excited to learn is the latest from Pedro Almodovar, uh, starring Penelope Cruz. It's called Madres Paralelas. Um, apologies if I butchered that at all, but um, he's coming off of Pain and Glory, which I think is one of his very best movies. And um, he also made the, that incredible short with Tilda Swinton that was out earlier this year. So he's been on a bit of a roll, and Venice is really shaping into a really strong lineup this year already uh, because they also have dune let us not forget that's true mm. i love pain and glory i that was i've i've been an almodovar fan for a long time but i thought that was just incredible work from him so i'm excited to see what else is next chris do you have any reactions to the venice news yeah i uh big almodovar fan i've sort of been going back in quarantine to uh women on the verge and you know uh, all about my mother so uh, just yeah so i'm i'm very i'm ready for him to you know to be back and you know to i'm very excited for it and then let's see we, we also got some news out of tiff uh what do we know out of tiff david so i think the bigger news is actually not strictly TIFF related, but uh, the Canadian government announced that they're going to be allowing uh, vaccinated Americans into the country starting next month, which bodes, I think, surprisingly well for TIFF in terms of being a destination festival again, um, particularly in the context of a major award stopover. Um, I think a lot of us were unsure slash not particularly optimistic about them letting right. us in because we don't have our act together over here. Um, but true. clearly they are they they are very confident in the power of Pfizer and Moderna to override American ignorance. And so that being said, the TIFF also just announced today their opening night film um, will be Dear Evan Hansen, uh, which is, you know, this the timing makes a lot of sense because it is a September release for Universal. It might not necessarily be an Oscar juggernaut, but it, it is 
it is getting that treatment. So Ben Platt with the hair, let's let's go. Let's go, let's Chris. Go. Chris, I, thoughts. This is a big <laughs> swing, um, and we'll see. We'll see how it. We'll see how it goes. Um, I mean, the musical theater kid in me couldn't be rooting for this movie more, but uh, having seen the trailer, I I have doubt. So <laughs> I'm. I don't know if this sort of like how much to read into its placement as like the opening night film, because there are a lot of other really sort of like exciting films on the lineup. Um, Last Night in Soho, Edgar Wright's premiere is there. Uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog is also having its <laughs> world premiere at TIFF, lest we forget. So TIFF putting all of its, you know, its its, uh, its eggs in the Ben Platt basket, is it's a choice. It's a, it's a, it's a big choice. And I'm excited to see sort of how that pans out. We're all going to watch. So that, that much I know. I mean, that's just, that's true. That is true. <laughs> you know, no doubt about it. Um, and I'm with you. Like, I'm always rooting for the movies to be great. I want a great movie. That's what I want. So, so we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully this will happen. Um, and then my last film festival question. I didn't. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, but uh, of course. I mean, I feel like we should do a little bit of a a can mini wrap up. Um, I mean, Richard obviously will be back to give some of his on the ground reporting. But you know, awards were given out. Um, you and Richard collaborated on a great post about sort of how this impacts the Oscar race. So David, what's what's your can takeaway? My overall takeaway is I, I think that this is potentially not a huge can to Oscars year. I think all eyes were sort of on it because the last can in 2019 yielded Parasite, which of course had the most incredible run. Um, this year, I think you had a really strong slate of films. It has nothing to do with the quality of the films, but a lot of them veered even compared to Parasite toward the more esoteric, while the winner, the uh, Palme d'Or winner, Titan, was uh, <laughs> considered among the weirdest winners ever. And Neon's going to be campaigning for that one, but I think it's it's got a bit of a climb. That said, you also have a case where the Academy, particularly the directing branch, is getting more international. So I'm, this might be kind of a litmus test. I'm curious to see if you know, an Oscar Ferrati, who had a really acclaimed film come out of this year's festival, can maybe get a directing nomination. Or actually, speaking of a Moldovar, he's never been nominated for directing uh, coming out of Venice. Uh, I wonder if he can find a way in there now. So those kinds of questions about how the Academy is changing make Cannes a little bit more Oscar-y uh, than it used to be. But other than that, no, like, huge breakouts for me. How about you, Chris? Anything that you're excited to see from the coverage you've seen so far? Um, I'm just really excited that Tilda Swinton's Three Dogs won the Palm Dog Award <laughs> for, for Runaway Hit. Dog and I did the Runaway <laughs> Hit. Um, I'm really proud of them. They were so cute when they <laughs> when she did that music video earlier this year where they were sort of on a beach and opera was playing. So I'm really I'm really happy for them. But um, yeah, I mean, from a, a sort of a less uh, awards insider perspective, there are a lot of it felt very buzzy. There are a lot of films. I was like, oh, I, I really can't wait to see, you know, Titan. I can't wait to see The Worst Person in the World. I can't wait to see a bunch of these sort of buzzy films. But I definitely can understand how, if they're already sort of esoteric, they might not make the leap to, you know, to awards baby Oscar films. But this year is looks like it might be different than any other year. There might be no Golden Globe. To, you know, <laughs> there's a lot that's up in the air. So, uh, Dear Evan Hansen is going to be missing that Golden Globe category, let's just say. <laughs> it, needs, it needs that category. Oh, God, it needs it so bad. Devastating. Oh, yeah. Um, speaking of, of 
fun and eccentric awards. Uh, we're going to hop now to the daytime Emmys. Um, and I say eccentric for this reason. Um, this is something that was sort of bothering me is too strong a word, but whatever. I just thought it was kind of funny, uh, when the daytime Emmy nominations were announced because, uh, Netflix has been doing this thing, right. Where they submit some of their YA programming into the daytime Emmys. Uh, so we've got, I think it's two time Emmy women winner Dash and Lily coming out of the daytime Emmy awards just because <laughs> like Dash and Lily, which is YA technically, but is it daytime? I don't know. What time did you watch it on Netflix? Um, yeah, one, two Emmy Awards. And and that just adds to Netflix's stack. And it's just, uh, I think, one of the many canny ways in which they can just sort of like bump their numbers in, in general. You know, and of course, people were talking about... Zach Efron's now an Emmy winner. Yeah. Um, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's <laughs> now an Emmy winner. Uh, <laughs> did you Both so for Netflix many... things. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, Chris, did you have any uh, daytime Emmy takeaways? Well, it's, it's ridiculous because Netflix, the whole thing about Netflix is you can watch it at any time. Like They should be excluded from participating in this category, in this award, because you can watch it. As I said the last time, or one of the times I was on this podcast, I watched Dash and Lily from like 11 p.m. to like 5 a.m. one night. So it's like, that doesn't feel like a daytime show for me. And while, you know, I'm happy for Zach and Lupita, it's just hard to take seriously. And as someone who does famously love awards, it makes me be like, oh, wait, this is all so fake. It's like, that's all that I like can see or hear once, you know, things like this happen. I will say one cool daytime Emmy win that I really liked was the Laura Dern song that the gay men's chorus sang at, I think, the Independent Spirit Awards. I think that that won. win? Oh, that's great. So congratulations (laughs) to everyone involved. That was a a fantastic number, well sung, well executed. I love that. So that's the one good, that's my my daytime Emmy (laughs) pick. Oh, that thrills me. What do you think, David? I was about to just trash the daytime Emmys, but now I'm <laughs> have to rethink my entire life. Now you life. can't. Now you can't. The, the one thing I will say is that they are the only ones with an explicit, like, young adult category. And so you could also argue the opposite that, like, you know, I just loved uh, Never Have I Ever season two, which mm-hmm. because it's really good and has, I think, a lot of primetime Emmy worthy work in it. Um, is probably not going to submit for a daytime Emmy. It didn't for its first season, even though technically that's probably now the cleanest category for it. So it's just, it's really messy. And I think, unfortunately, a streamer like Netflix is in such a position to be able, and, you know, no fault of theirs, to be able to exploit that because they don't have time slots. They're not airing at a particular time. Um, and they work closely with the Television Academy to figure out where their shows should and can go, uh, which is why you can say Dash and Lily is an Emmy winner and Never Have I Ever is not, which is kind of insane. <laughs> wild. Truly wild. And, like, you know, I want to respect the the daytime Emmy winners. I don't consider them to have, like, an asterisk next to their name or anything like that. It's just sort of, like, when the category, I don't want to call it fraud, gets a little just so messy. It's messy. You know, and I and and we'll see how messy it continues to get. Um, you know, I guess as long as they keep it to YA, we can kind of draw a boundary around something. But again, uh, for Chris and for many of the rest of us, Dash and Lily was a uh, an early morning watch an rather early than a morning watch. binge. Yes, <laughs> there was no sunlight. <laughs> no, not a beam of sun <laughs> came through my window while I was watching that show. Uh, so so let's let's go to uh, primetime Emmys. We we talked a lot about them last week. Um, we sort of ran through you know, but but it was a 
pretty immediate reaction that we had last week. We're in the throes of the shock and the thrill and all of that. So I wanted to take a sort of week two look at them. And we're going to do like a little round robin segment and, and come up with some people that we want to root for some folks. It's all actually kind of positive. I'm not, I'm not here to, to rain on anyone's parade. We're going to boost things that we think are a little underwatched things that are overwatched, but deserve it, all that sort of stuff. So, um, here are our three categories. It is a snub that we're still kind of testy about, but we're like, we're like, watch this, go watch this and nominate it next time. Or, uh, regret forever not nominating it. Number two, an underdog that like we want to root for, and, and we think maybe maybe we can use our combined power to to make it happen for this person. And the last thing we're going to talk about is our front runners that we think are worth the hype. Um, so these are folks that don't need our support, but we're rooting for them anyway. Um, so let's start. Let's start with the snubs, and I'm start with you, Chris. Like, what are you still frosty about a week later? Right. I will say I do love this positive vibe just because after we trash the daytime Emmys, we got to be only positive from here on out. <laughs> all good vibes. All, good, all vibes. good vibes. All good vibes. No, I, I'm joking. But um, I sort of snub. I mean, when I think back about all the TV that I watch, and I will say it, I was sort of delightfully surprised with the Emmys. They sort of they do seem to sort of be expanding their reach, but there are still some shows that are just Emmy shows. It's like, okay, everybody watched like four more new shows and then gave all of the nominations to them. Ted Lasso. I mean, not even... You know, The Handmaid's Tale, not even new, but, you know, they just uh, Lovecraft Country and, like, celebrate that. Happy for all of them. But to my snubs, which I wish if the Academy would expand its purview, I think there are a lot of great comedies on Peacock. There are two specifically that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, Girls 5 Eva. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about this show. If you've listened to this podcast, <laughs> we never talk about how much we love it. Um, but it really is such a a unique and well-executed and so deeply funny and sweet and sincere comedy that was had some of the best, funniest, some dark jokes too in the pilot, really, I think, deserved to, to sort of nudge its way into that really crowded, and, and, a, and a crowded best comedy uh, race this year. Like there are mm-hmm. a lot of really great options and a lot of things that I do like Pen15 and Hacks a lot of great shows got in this year which is fantastic but I do think and we know that people were watching Girls 5 Eva because it got a writing nomination so some of the Emmy people are watching and uh, I I have a soft spot in my heart for that show and I think you know next year season two it's coming I'm a big fake Harlock guy that's I'm a 30 rock till I die type of guy so it's just it's very much a heart song show for me and I will say another show that's even more is probably under the radar that's on Peacock that's really great uh the Saved by the Bell reboot we I want love for that reboot it is really really well done and surprisingly hilarious. Everyone's great. They do a great job of blending, you know, the Gen X and the Zoomer of it all into a really sort of outstanding, hilarious teenage show with fantastic writing, great performances. Um, And uh, yeah, I think Emmys people should be watching Saved by the Bell, the Saved by the Bell reboot. I didn't take it seriously before. I was like, oh, this is going to be bad because it's a Saved by the Bell reboot. And it ended up being hilarious. Maybe Peacock just submit it in the daytime Emmy categories. It actually could because it's young adult. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, it's actually like, that's the hack. (laughs) 
I used to watch Saved by the Bell during the day, so I don't know. Um, yeah, no, you're not, not alone in that. I think most people who have taken the time to watch the Saved by the Bell reboot have had a really positive reaction to it. Um, you don't even necessarily need to have seen the original series to love it. Uh, it's very clever. And I'm seeing like more and more people discover it and watch it. Yeah. So I think it's sort of picking up an audience. Uh, Slow Steve- burn. <laughs> But my big, I guess my bigger question around Peacock is like, is the thing with Peacock, because uh, there are a few shows on there that I do like, but does it need a Ted Lasso-esque big hit to get people to then pay attention to some of the other things, you know, to, to go ahead and smash that subscribe button and pay attention to some of the other offerings they have? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's waffling between, because there is there are some really great shows on the platform, but it doesn't have, uh, you know... Uh, at Ted Lasso or, uh, you know, Mayor of Easttown or just sort of like a big, you know, streaming platform defining show. And it has something really great to offer. But I think I think that's how you break through in the streaming wars. I mean, now, you know, with Paramount Plus and all, there's too much. There's just too much noise and too many, you know, $10, $15 a month <laughs> streaming platforms to sign up for. So unless you have a show that is going to, one show that is going to generate subscribers and people to, to get on that platform, I think a lot of really good, a lot of really good content gets sort of lost in the sieve that is you know, streaming television. So I don't know. I feel like Saved by the Bell, Girls Five Ever. I felt like Girls Five Ever was going to be that for mm-hmm. Peacock. I don't know how much that panned out, but I I'm hoping for both shows. Slow burn by season two, maybe it'll it'll, it'll break. They'll break out. I'm kind of tracking it. I mean, I'm curious what you think, David. But I'm kind of tracking Peacock on the same on that same Apple trajectory, because I think that like Apple, I think for a long time we knew that there was a lot of good content on there, but there wasn't enough for a lot of people to cross that threshold. And then when Ted Lasso was such a massive word of mouth hit and not even the show that Apple thought was going to be, you know, their golden ticket. They thought it was going to be a morning show or whatever it was. (laughs) But once people then subscribe to Apple, then they're like, Oh, what, what else is around here? And, and they're starting to pick up on those shows. Um, I'll, I'll go with my snub, which is an Apple show and add in addition to what I'm just going to talk about for all mankind, which I think is sort of been picking up some steam as people spend more time on the Apple platform. But my Apple, uh, snub is mythic quest, which is in its second season, um, is a show that I only caught up with in its second season. Um, and a show that I think I, you know, I've, I've talked about it on here a lot. Um, but I, I really think it's underrated. It got nominated for, um, Anthony Hopkins got a nomination for narrating this great episode he, he that they can't did. Stop winning. <laughs> <laughs> he's just on a streak. I don't and, think uh, he's going to the Emmys either. That's, that's not looking likely. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I think that same episode ever like got like a sound editing or something like that. So like it got two nominations. Uh, the Anthony Hopkins of it all was really funny in that episode because when they sent that episode out, Rob McElhenney sent out a letter that says like, and yes, that is Anthony Hopkins. Um, But they just did fantastic work this season and last season. Um, The interstitial episodes that they had between bridging the seasons, Everlight was one of them, which is this sort of like role-playing game thing they did. But then they also did one of my only, the only things filmed during the pandemic that I actually liked, like a Zoom-based episode that I thought was incredibly good. And this is just, you know, like Rob McElhenney, who who is an institution in television, thanks to it's always sunny like doesn't have an emmy an emmy for rob i mean rob has plenty so i'm not like poor rob but like he deserves an emmy and he he's directed two of the best episodes which uh in each season they kind of do this like a standalone sort of 
backstory one is a literally called backstory episode and he directed both of those episodes i think a director nomination for rob would be in order i think a writing nomination for that show would be in order so that's that's my mythic quest uh stance do you either of you have any have you guys watched the show do you have any thoughts about it it's a great show and it's a travesty that it really didn't even have much of a chance. I think, I mean, I'm a huge Rob McElhenney fan and I think he will, he's already going down as like one of the most ridiculously overdue TV writers for something. I mean, he really is behind the longest running sitcom of all time. It's always set in Philadelphia. I, I think we have to say live action. Yeah, I knew there was, I knew there was a caveat. <laughs> the Simpsons will get you. <laughs> I knew there was a caveat. And, and the fact that that show is still going so strong and that Mythic Quest simultaneously had such a creative breakout season. And he really pitched for himself, too. I mean, he really talked about, you know, feeling like that show deserved more attention, um, rightly. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't come to fruition. It did get some Television Critics Association Award nominations, uh, which will will also be true, which is also true for some other Apple shows. Um, and, and to your earlier point, Joanne, I think the difference between Apple and Peacock is exactly the Ted Lasso effect, but it's also just very hard for anyone to have a show that really breaks out in a sizable way these days. I think one thing we've learned with these Emmy nominations is that there's there's a handful that really can kind of soar to the pack and get like 10 acting nominations and, and too many that don't really get anything. So, uh, and that's a gulf that I think is widening. And Mythic Quest is a good example of a show that, yeah, maybe it wasn't going to be 20 nominations, but it, it deserved more than two creative arts nominations. Right. Mm. One for Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> um, <laughs> much love yeah. to, to Sir Anthony Hopkins. Um, all right, David, what's your what's your snub that you want to talk so about? So my snub, uh, we're, we're jetting away from comedy. We're going into the limited series race, which I think has like several great shows represented. So it's not necessarily for lack of, you know, great competition, but uh, The Good Lord Bird starring Ethan Hawke which was on a long time ago. I am not surprised it didn't get anything. I am, although I am shocked that Ethan Hawke did not at least get a Best Actor nomination. He's pretty incredible in this show. Uh, he plays abolitionist John Brown. It's a really inventive, funny, sad, um, original adaptation of the James McBride novel. And it's really a portrait of that period that in, done in a way that I hadn't really seen before. Uh, and Hawke is just like, he is so brilliantly over the top and wild and probably the best performance I've seen of his career. I mean, he's just so committed from moment one. And um, he also wrote the show, co-created it. It is a full tour de four and he got no recognition for it, which is quite sad. Yeah. Chris, did you, were you a Good Lord Bird fan? I feel like I am a member of the Academy and that it slipped through my fingers and I didn't even see it. And so, so get me my Emmy ballot because I feel like that's the only explanation. It's one of those things that it did happen a while ago and it does, I mean, anything pre, you know, November of 2020 feels like truly 17 lifetimes ago. So I could understand that even people who did see it, it might not have been top of mind, but it seems like that's the only explanation is that I just didn't get enough eyeballs on it. That was um, Showtime, right? It was Showtime. The other thing yeah. I would add is that um, David Diggs plays Frederick Douglass and is mm. like just as great as you would expect in that part. But of course, he was already nominated for Hamilton. Well, of so, course, of course. I was like, he's nominated yeah. for Hamilton. So is Renee at least. Yeah, so is Renee. Exactly. He canceled <laughs> himself out. And the best actor category was almost half Hamilton people. So sorry, Ethan Hawke. Um, yes. I mean, and. <laughs> 
forget what I said about things being from a long time ago and people forgetting things because some things from a long time ago make their way back every award season. Hamilton lingers. Hamilton lingers. Well, I wanted to ask you guys about Showtime, though, because that's a it's a platform that I feel like used to have a stronger hold on award season than it does uh, than it has the last couple of years. And that's, of course, because of the invasion of the streamers. But it used to be like Showtime and HBO would kind of like own these various categories. And now Showtime is really lagging behind. Do you have any theories on that? Uh, either David or Chris? This might be a sort of a controversial theory because um, I don't really necessarily know if I remember exactly like the when Showtime had a hold. But something that I love about Showtime is that it really has sort of delved into making very sort of like progressive and sort of and specifically black content. I would say Z-Way Show is fantastic. Flatbush Misdemeanors. Black Monday is very black and very queer. And I don't know if that has anything to do with why it's now sort of being more ignored than it might have been you know, back in the day. But I've sort of, that's like a trajectory that I have loved for the platform. Um, but you're right, it's not, it isn't generating the same awards buzz that I guess older Showtime shows, I'm sort of struggling to think of what those shows are right now. Weeds, was that Showtime? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, Nurse Jackie. Yeah. Nurse Jackie. Nurse Jackie. Sort of. Weeds, okay, great. And I love Weeds, love Edie Falco. But I will say there's, it's Showtime has sort of moved maybe a little bit away from those types of shows into something that is more racially diverse and uh, just diverse in general. And it's maybe not landing in the same way. And that's a problem with not Showtime, but the television Academy. Right. What do you think, David? I, I agree with Chris. I think that as the amount of options, particularly like pay subscription options has exploded, Showtime has fallen by the wayside in part because the people who vote are maybe less inclined to stick with Showtime, uh, given what it's evolved into, which I think is something much more creatively interesting. I mean, even mm -hmm. something like Good Lord Bird, um, I think falls into that category. But then you also have, as a result, stuff like the Comey Rule, which felt like a very showtimey, starry miniseries, or Your Honor with Brian Cranston also mm. getting nothing. Mm. Um, I think Showtime was one of those services that still quite a few of them have. I think that there are some holdovers. Like you'd see Don Sheetal always getting nominated for Black Monday, for example, even though yeah. that show didn't get much otherwise. But it, I, I think it's slipping from a lot of voters' radar. And this was probably a huge warning sign in general that um, so many of its shows, both on the more worthy end, like Z-Way, or Good Lord Bird, and on the more like these are Emmy friendly shows like Your Honor or Comey Rule, getting nothing. Yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on Showtime uh, as ever. I'm rooting for everyone always. Let us keep the good <laughs> vibes rolling along uh, with some underdogs that we want. We, like maybe we can push over the line here. Um, Chris, I want you to start because I'm I'm a big fan of your pick here. Okay, all right. My underdog is I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know if. if He's technically an underdog, but I'm submitting a Bowen Yang SNL uh, hero and history maker, first ever uh, featured cast member to get an Emmy nomination. I am I am I'm all in on Bowen. I think the work that he did first, the work that he did this season, I mean, it was so funny from Fran Leibowitz to my potentially favorite sketch of all time, the Titanic, <laughs> the iceberg that uh, hit the Titanic, that okay. uh, press release. So good. It, it's so smart and so specific. Even And even, you know, when he gets to be silly with Dua Lipa and Kristen Wiig, you know, <laughs> dancing um, in an old timey army outfit. For a show that really had, I think, a really great year that got out of the sort of Donald Trump hole that it was sort of stuck in, mired in this just 
awful, you know, space yeah. that it had to be as, you know, you know, as SNL, as political uh, comedy goes. But I think it really sort of, it blossomed and flourished in a banner year. It was the number one show in the 18 to 24 demographic this year. It ended as like the number one entertainment show. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to sort of like Bowen and also Cecily and Kate and Aidy and, all, you know, this sensibility that a, that a, a lot of performers um, on the show have. And I think Bowen is sort of like the next gen, sort of the the perfect encapsulation of like of the best of what SNL can be. And so to award him right now when he's on the rise, I think would be fantastic and deeply deserved. Um, so Emmys, get on the train. Don't be late on this. You're already, I, and again, I will say, very happy they were ahead of the curve. I actually did this category with David uh, or, uh, or I did this category for like our, our Vanity Fair um, predictions and I missed a lot because I had not seen Ted Lasso yet. So I didn't really know that it was going to be mostly Ted Lasso and <laughs> Bowen and that's it and Keenan. Um, but yeah, so I'm all in. That being said, Keenan wins. Very happy about that too. Oh yeah. I mean, we, 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 we love Keenan to win. Yeah, we, we love, love a Keenan win. We love yeah. a Keenan win. No, but uh, I think what's interesting about that category, and now I can say this in a way that, that you'll get, uh, Chris is like, so it's, it's all the diamond dogs from Ted Lasso, <laughs> all of them. Every single uh, one. <laughs> and congratulations to them. And I love them. But like uh, Brett Goldstein seems like the person who is doing the most work uh so far that i've seen campaigning so if i were to pick a front runner out of the diamond dogs pack there it would be uh brett but is it possible that all the ted lasso guys cancel each other out and and bone comes through what do you think david i think there's definitely a possibility that that happens um there's also a possibility that they just take all the votes and i think brett goldstein i agree with you joanna that he would be the one to win that also i think he's just Mm -hmm. So hilarious in that. He is great. He's great. great. He's great. I love Bowen Yang. And it's funny, Chris, after you put him as your underdog, I was like, actually, I wonder if he he can win because while Keenan is probably the odds on favorite in this category because the Ted Lasso guys are at least going to cancel each other out to some extent. And he's obviously the much known, more known entity of the two SNL people. I feel like Bowen had such a breakout season and you could almost argue that the nomination was was more of the more of the hurdle. It was something that mm-hmm. was less known and the fact that he really is on the radar enough to get in there um yes. given how good his work was and how I'm sure he's going to submit the iceberg episode which is like can you beat that? I don't yeah. I don't I don't think you can in terms of what made me laugh out loud. That's <laughs> that's what that's where think, I'm coming yeah, from for so, this category. I think you can fairly call him an underdog, but I also think he's definitely in the thick of it. So we're only, this is only well, helping him. So And he's definitely going to win now that we brought him up on this podcast. So uh... this is exactly where he wants to be right now. <laughs> it's something that we do. We can't help it. Yeah. yeah. So that's, in- that was part of it. Uh, all right. Uh, David, hit me with your underdog. My underdog is um, a show that I don't think anyone really watched, but it's in treatment. I watched it. Yeah. So my pick is Uzo Aduba for in treatment. Um, the only nomination from that show. And honestly, I think through sheer force of will, she got that nomination because that was a very competitive category. In treatment did not get any other nominations, including some other acting nominations. I think it very much deserved. But she is pretty extraordinary in this part um, because it was... Uh, not so widely seen. I don't think she has too much of a shot here. Although she won for Mrs. America, 
um, which was a bit of a surprise. She she tends to overperform at the Television Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, Don Cheadle vibes. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Don Cheadle vibes. Um, but she just, she commands every single episode she's in, 24 in total. She has one episode late in the season. Uh, I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say where she plays her own therapist. So it's a two-hander between Uzo Aduba and Uzo Aduba. And it shouldn't work, but she's just so brilliant in both sides of the performance that it completely works and it's actually kind of devastating and and heartbreaking and um it's it, it's her first lead acting nomination which is a huge deal for her and um i would love to see her bypass those brilliant crown ladies and uh and pull off an upset yeah so she i mean you're completely right that she's a she's a television academy favorite she's got three emmys mm. um already right two for orange is the new black one for mrs america I love seeing her in this category. Again, I don't know if it's going to go, but like the thing, I think we talked about this last week, David, but the thing about Uzo in this show is that, you know, it's 22 episodes, right? Which is, um, I think they're about 24. Okay. 24 episodes, uh, which, you know, feels like a massive commitment in our current TV landscape. And then she's in like almost every single second of every episode. Like I was talking, when I was talking to Joel Kinnaman, who did, who did not get a nomination for his work in a treatment or for all mankind. But like when I was talking to him he was just like, she was just constantly studying her scripts and she had like, you know, her assistant in her ear and she was just constantly running because she had so much that she had to get down and she nailed it. She crushed it. She did an incredible job. So yeah, I'm a huge Uzo fan and I've, I really love the show. And I actually back to the Ted Lasso of it all. I, or a, another category, I guess I, I should say, but I really thought John Benjamin Hickey and Anthony Ramos were going to get in for supporting actor, which didn't happen, um, which is interesting, which I think speaks to Joanna's point that like 24 episodes is sort of a hard bargain. It's easy to sort of fall off at some point um, with it. It's tough, but I I do think she is sort of, not not to throw what you just threw at me, she is kind of an Emmy darling. She is sort of, a, she's sort of an Emmy darling. She's got three Emmys. Um, and clearly I do think the hurdle was her getting into the cat. I mean, that's the big hurdle. I mean, I do think she's got some formidable, some formidable uh, opponents in her category, but um her work on the show is really, it's really fantastic and specific and deeply felt. And she is doing like a Titanic <laughs> job. It's a Titanic undertaking. So I would be like, you know, very happy to see her take it. All right. I'm going to pop in with, with my underdog, which is someone also, of course, who put an enormous amount of work on their show, which is Michaela Cole. Um, mm. I may destroy you. Uh, we were of course like thrilled to see this show get, um, this like piece of art, get a lot of nominations, uh, certainly more than, uh, it did elsewhere in other award ceremonies. Um, and so that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, that feels like a victory in its own right. But like, so the category that she's in, She's up against Kate Winslet on a Taylor Joy. And I think a lot of people are seeing it as like a race between those two, though the coverage on VF and like when I see David write about it, he usually calls it like a a three-hander race. But like, I think most other folks are just not not thinking that Michaela being nominated is the victory and that 
you know, it's really down to Kate and Anya. And I just like, I want to keep Michaela in the conversation. Um, we talked about last week that maybe she'll win for a non-acting award. Maybe she'll win for, you know, writing or something like that. And, and I would be happy with that. But like, also for her, I want to see something like the night that Phoebe Waller-Bridge had, where she had just like an armful of Emmys because mm. that sh- this show was so incredible. I've, I've not seen anything like it ever. And, uh, and she did so much work on it and it was so, and she worked so hard to make sure it was exactly what she wanted it to be, which is so hard to accomplish at any given point, uh, in, in our TV history. So Michaela, I just want like a huge night for her and I don't know if she's going to get it, but, um, that's what I want. What do you guys think? Oh God. I just, yes to everything you said. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's transcendent. The work was transcendent. She is transcendent and it's, it's so amazing. And yes, it can, it can feel like, oh, well, now she's finally got recognition. She's finally, you know, deservedly got a nomination, like the work is over. But she is every much as deserving as a Phoebe Waller-Bridge or, you know, whoever to sort of take home a, a stack of Emmys for that show. And and it's, it's crazy, though, because I do believe that she's sort of only just beginning. I mean, I've been, you know, on the Michaela Cole train since chewing gum. Like, you know, so those yeah. of us who know, know. Um, but... I think it's a really difficult category. Uh, I will say there was a really great viral tweet that was like, this is a category that will break up gay friend groups. And (laughs) it is true. Fights have broken out, you know, from New York to LA. Um, So I understand. I, so I'm, I'm sort of bracing myself for that reality. And I think it's, it was, you know, smart of you to put her as an underdog. Um, But I, you know, she's my, she's my number one. Love her. What do you think, David? I think I said it last week too, but, she like the writing is beautiful it's just gorgeously directed but for me the performance is so raw and it's just like this kind of hybrid of memoir and fiction in a performance that is so i've never seen anything like it and it's the most worthy of its many extremely worthy elements for me and particularly her like unbelievable amount of contributions to that show uh and i think it would be quite wrong for voters to to dismiss that. Um, and I, I, I'm glad she made it into a very, very, very competitive category. I think that speaks to the fact that she was not um, overlooked in that department, um, which is an important first step. I do think she's got quite a climb to win that award, but she's also my number one. I think um, as brilliant as Kate Winslet and Anya Taylor-Joy were, there's this isn't a whole nother realm for me. Um, and I'm just, I'm happy she made it. And I'm, I'm really, I'll be happy if she wins something, which I, I'm, cautiously hopeful that she will. Um, but this would be the category that I, I would really root for her to win. Also, I, I will say, can we just give her an Emmy for sti- like for having an amazing last episode, for sticking the landing with the last episode yeah. in such an incredible... I come back to that. So many shows, especially many series, I feel either peter out or they fully miss, you know, they waffle. And it was just such a... I've never... That specific episode and uh, the dream sequence and the, and the reimagining of all these different ways to end the story and how do you end a story? How do you end, how do you end something and move on? It was so brilliant. And I still think about it all the time. I just like... It just has to be set... Just, is there an Emmy for one episode of television? Get, let's give it there should be, for that as well. There should be a finale category. There should be a finale category because it's so hard. <laughs> it is so hard. Um, all right. And, and we're not going to spend too much time on these frontrunners because they don't need a lot of boosting from us. But like these are just like the folks who are definitely going to win and we're not at all mad about it. Uh, let's start with David. Sure. Uh, Gene Smart. Yes. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> 
to me, runaway favorite in that category, and there is no problem with that. She, this is like a career capping Titanic, uh, hilarious performance. Um, Deborah Vance is an icon, and that is because <laughs> of Gene Smart. Um, we can we can debate whether Hannah Einbinder should also be lead. She's nominated in supporting, um, but as it stands, as the Emmys have determined it, uh, she is the obvious and the right choice. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about my TCA ballot and what I just voted for, but I will say that like Gene Smart is nominated there for like uh, for comedy, but also uh, for like the Legacy Award that TCA does, mm. and I and I like voted for her from the Legacy Award because you know designing women all the way through this like Gene Smart Renaissance. I'm just sort of like let's give Gene. I mean like just give her everything, um, but this Emmy is just like so deserves so long overdue. She's so incredible and everything. So um, big big Gene Smart fan. Chris. Thank you, HBO Max. Thank you yes. for bringing her back. Bring her to us. Yeah, yeah exactly. um, Totally agree. Love Gene Smart. Love Hacks. So about that. Okay, so my front runner is obviously Emily in Paris. No. <laughs> <laughs> what if? Could you imagine? My sort of front runner, who I, I'll be happy if for whatever awards they win, I'm going to just the crown at all. I... Loved this season of The Crown. I was not a crown. I was like, The Crown is a mom show. Ozark is a dad show. I'm not going to watch The Crown. Like, I did not get into that culture in any way before season four. But then I fully got sucked in by the Diana and the Margaret Thatcher of it all. And I thought... Welcome to Vanity Fair, Chris. I know. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. I was not working here when I watched it. Clearly, I was not working here because I did not watch The Crown. But I was like, I don't care. And I thought it was a, a really brilliantly done and acted and performed and written season that took two sort of disparate, obviously same things over the Margaret Thatcher, the Falkland Wars and Diana and Charles, mostly terrible relationship um, and made me deeply like crazily invested in both of these things that I truly did not care that much about before. I think Emma Corrin was amazing. Obviously, Olivia was is fantastic in everything that she does. So yes, Jillian Anderson, um, Tobias Menzies, Josh O'Connor, every single one. So uh, uh, how could I be forgetting Helena Bonham Carter? Any awards that the Crown wins, I, I have to I have to give it up. So even if and, I, and they're again some of our favorites. So I will say I will say. But if the Crown takes it, I'm happy. Even though it might not be the front runner because maybe the Mandalorian will win. I don't know. I defer to you. Joy. I was just wondering <laughs> that actually this morning. I, I this you is, think the Mandalorian is gonna win? <laughs> I, I wake up thinking like, huh, could this happen? And I actually woke up thinking this morning, is the Mandalorian being underrated in drama series? Um, but I digress. I still think the Crown will win. But I'm gonna put that so. on a post-it like I did when Richard predicted that Anthony Hopkins was gonna win the Oscar like a full <laughs> year in advance. <laughs> And I'll be like, Netflix is kind of cursed at the Emmys. Like it's, it's It's actually a thing. So, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm also just on the, on the lookout for what could beat it. And the crown seems so unbeatable. Um, but I think it has a real, at least competitor. I love the idea of David Canfield waking up in a cold sweat being like, the Mandalorian, (laughs) are we underrated? (laughs) (laughs) We're not taking it seriously enough. (laughs) Um, all right. So I am here to stump for my front runner, which will lead us into our next segment, um, which is, uh, the lovely Jason Sudeik. And uh, I was just looking, I don't think he even ever got nominated for Saturday Night Live, which is uh, wild because he's actually one of my, he's just one of those like, that era of Saturday Night Live is one of my favorites. That cast was so incredible and so stacked. And I think it was a, a time when they weren't doing a lot to nominate 
SNL actors. I could be wrong about that. But anyway, uh, that Sudeikis is... Yeah, you're happen. right. It, yeah. it, was, it was when it was... They still had the variety performer category. Um, and so it was just far fewer of them were nominated because they couldn't stack them in supporting actor in a comedy category. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so Sudeikis, longtime fan, uh, and I really love him. And I'm really, really, really so pleased that he has found this vehicle that, you know, it's the same way that like when, when Bill Hader had his post, uh, success or Andy Samberg, like any of those, any of those guys and, and women of that era, I'm just so excited when they find their footing and find their footing in like a really fun way. That's not like the SNL movie that you can do out of (laughs) SNL, which like, I love those movies, but like to find their own something, their own Avenue that best suits them. And the the fact that like Bill Hader went in this direction, which is like a little darker and more serious and interesting. And that Andy Samberg did this like a great sitcom. And then he's, and then, you know, Sudeikis is holding, holding out. He's, he's the hero of Apple uh, along with Bill Lawrence. (laughs) So, uh, so let's talk about Ted Lasso. This list leads us in our final segment, which is, we're going to talk about Ted Lasso season two. I actually want to start with, uh, with Chris, um, (laughs) because Chris had not seen any of Ted Lasso. So I want to start asking you, Chris, um, you have now, but, uh, why were you resistant to the charms uh, of Ted Lasso? That is such a good question. And I was, I was very much, I was anti-Ted, I will say, <laughs> having not seen a single episode. I just felt, it felt like it was going to be schmaltzy and maudlin and overly sappy and all heart, no cutting, no teeth, no nothing biting. Again, as I said, I'm a fake Carlock Hive. I will add Tracy Morgan and 30 Rock as an SNL person who got his due after the show. Another, Mm -hmm. another example of that. Um, But so that's where I tend to go comedically is, you know, biting, cutting, satire, you know, zany. And that's not what the that's not what the promo, you know, no shade to the Apple press team, but that's not what the promo material was giving me. So imagine my surprise when, yes, it does have like a huge heart, but it is sharp. And and, you know, I mean, the references, I mean, playing Ted up as this really and Anthony Bresnikan, our, you know, a senior writer at at Vanity Fair, just had this really great article about how Ted is like not a creep, (laughs) Um, which is really an impressive, it's impressive how they've conceived of this character that is so goofy and so sort of old school in so many ways, but they give him enough of a sheen, enough of a, you know, uh, an edge, a a smartness, not even edge, edge is the wrong word, but just a, a... at sharpness, I will say, um, in terms of repartee and banter, the banter on the show is so fantastic that I, you can't help but fall in love with it and and Ted. And I will say another thing, the supporting performances, and I do always go back to female actresses because they're my favorite things in the entire world, <laughs> but Juna Temple and Hannah Waddingham are Amazing. so yeah. fantastic. They're so free, especially Juno Temple for me, for whatever reason. Her Keely is, is such a... a a breath of fresh air in a character, you know, on a show that I'm fully Ted pilled now. So I, I apologize that I didn't. Ted pilled. <laughs> I love that. Did you coin Red that? Pilled, Ted pilled. I, uh, now I am. That's trademark. Okay. <laughs> Ted pilled. Um, so David, I want to ask you, because I presume that you like me watched season one, like, you know, uh, a little while ago. So the, the question about season two is like a big challenge for these shows that break so big in their first season is the sophomore season. Uh, and more often than not, I feel like the sophomore season lets people down, not even 
for quality, but because how can it measure up to the joy of discovering this thing for the first time or the hype of discovering it for the, for the first time. And I, I think shows like Shit's Creek, which was like a slow burn, um, wind up having, you know, longer legs and something that just flashes, uh, right from the start. Ted Lasso of course was like a little bit of a word of mouth. Like it, it took a while. It wasn't like immediate, but it was pretty quick. It was pretty intensive. So how do you feel like what we've seen in the second season, uh, you know, is this a worthy sophomore outing from this favorite? It delivers on exactly what people would hope for uh, if they love the first season. And I think actually Schitt's Creek is a really good example because I think for both of them, it becomes clear kind of later in their first seasons or maybe even into their second seasons in the case of Schitt's Creek that the kindness is the point. And and that's a different kind of challenge for a comedy uh, that they both that they share. And I think in Ted Lasso season two, you really see it kind of wrestling with kindness and it's it's so forward about being about that and that you know that being Ted Lasso the character's entire you know way of living and, and way of inspiring his team and so uh, one thing I love about this season is they introduce a new character um, Sharon played by Sarah Niles and she's uh, brought in as a psychologist for the mm-hmm. team but and there's kind of a, there's, this is this a sense of mystery around her as I was watching it and I was like what exactly are they going to do with her and and she and Ted will always kind of share these looks they they have these very cryptic conversations she works with some of the players who, who have issues over the course of the season but there is this tension between her and Ted as as we see the cracks in Ted's joyous facade or not a facade but um you know he has he's not a perfect man he's not a a man without demons or, 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 or pain. Um, and watching that play out, it was fascinating to me. And so while you have the continual sort of uplifting nature of the show, you also have it contending with that part of the show and, and trying to explore it a little bit, which made for a really interesting season two watch for me. Uh, in, in season one, the the moment that I knew this was like a show that was not just sort of fun, but also something that really had my heart is the episode where um, his kid and his uh, estranged wife come to visit and you see this incredible sadness in him. Like you see it from episode one, right? When he's like calling home and stuff like that. But like you see this incredible sadness, you explore even a little bit more of that in, in the end of, of season one. And it is, you know, to Chris's point, it's not, he's, he's kind, he's sunny. He's got this thing, you know, you, you watch him melt Hannah Waddingham's character. Like you watch, that's the journey of season one and stuff like that. But, um, and, and the intriguing thing about Sharon in season two is that his thing doesn't work on her, Uh, (laughs) not even a little bit. And that's, and that's sort of, uh, confounding for him, but like, he's not dumb, you know, he's sharp. He gets everything that's going on and he Mm -hmm. still approaches it with this like sort of upbeat attitude. And that's just, that's a, that's a really fun uh, combination to see for me. Season two, there's some elements of season two that I didn't love at first. Like I feel like the show, I always get a little worried when a show becomes aware of its fandom, if that makes any sense. And so like, I was like a little worried that like some of the banter that Chris is talking about has always been great, but like it's sort of ratcheted up to like a 12 in season two in a way that I'm like, okay, you know, that people like this, you're giving us more of it. And like more isn't always exactly what I want from something that I like that much. Um, so there's like a little bit like it feels almost a little manic at some points, but I mean, possibly that's intentional because I think 
Um, you know, I've seen six episodes. I haven't seen the full season, but like, I think where we're going is somewhere really interesting. And it might be that in the end, that sort of mania that I'm feeling at the beginning of the season will feel part of a whole, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but like, you know, it's possible. And so I'm, I'm reserving judgment until, and I'm, you know, for the record, really enjoying myself and having a great time and glad to be back with these characters. But, um, but that's just something I have my, my eye on. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that. I felt the same way. The other thing that you really see in those early episodes is, is a kind of a classic season two problem when things sort of blow up at the end of season one, which is you right. have a lot of characters in different places mm-hmm. and not to spoil anything, but you know, you have like Jamie Tart is no longer with the team. Roy Kent has retired. Um, things like that, where it's not that the show necessarily needs to go back to square one, but it does need to sort of find a way to reintegrate them uh, into the the main action. And I think it does a good job of that, but yeah. it, it does, there's some mechanics that you can see the wheels turning a little bit in, in, in bringing those elements back together. Um, but I agree, I've also seen six, which ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah. There's a lot in the, in the air throughout the season that I found really interesting. And I'm, I think I'm possibly just like expecting a payoff to that stuff. Um, because I am right. so intrigued by it. And I think that they've done a really uh, good job of setting up larger conflicts. Because the other the other point to be made, perhaps, is that there's just not a lot of conflict this season. <laughs> you know, you had um, Hannah Waddingham's character as, as a kind of classic conflicted antagonist in season one, and she is very much not an antagonist in season two. Right. right. Quite the opposite, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's lovely, but it also, you lose that element of it. And so it... I was just really interested in this season. It's interesting to see how it's it's going on from that. And I think it's done a pretty solid job. Um, not perfect, but uh, I've been pretty impressed by it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to say about season two? I mean, I'm just excited for other people to get to see it personally. Can we say that Hannah Wyndham does get to sing again at some point and it's worth every second? <laughs> I know that's not the point, but as you know, I, it it happens in a really glorious sweet, heartfelt, uh, emotionally satisfying way. And it's, and it's wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, since I'm new, I'm sort of experiencing season one and season two at the same time. So it sort of was a smoother transition. I was like, oh, we're just going, we're just going right into, you know, you know, know, so I didn't really notice the, you know, the ratcheting up of the banter because I'm just, I am new to it, but I can definitely see how that, that is true. And I'm curious to see how it all sort of pans out. Um, but I will say Ted and the psychiatrist, that's a great, that's a, that's a, that's the, that's a fresh, good, that's a very good development for season two that, um, people should keep their eyes out. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a really good dynamic to introduce. And, and also I should say, um, as a, as a longtime fan of, um, you know, this is an American show with British writers set in the UK, but it's still like an American show. Um, but as a longtime fan of British television, I was really excited. They have a Christmas episode <laughs> that we're going to get yes. like in summer, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is kind of fun. I love, I love. <laughs> A, a Christmas special. So uh, the Ted Lasso Christmas special is coming. All right. Well, that I think will do it for us. Uh, this is so great. Thank you guys so much for coming. And I, I really liked sort of talking about those Emmy conversations with a little a little bit more perspective. Obviously, we're going to keep talking about them until it's all, all is said and done. But I always get so um, sort of wound up on a nomination day and I'm like full of indignation and pride and all sorts of like that. So it's, it's nice to, to look at it all with uh, with cooler heads. All right. Well, that does it for this week. Uh, Chris Murphy, where can folks find you on the internet? 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Christress. And David Canfield. At David Canfield 97. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find Richard at Rylaws. You can find Katie at Katie Rich. This episode, Little Gold Men, was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And the award for best description of this good vibes episode goes to David Canfield. The kindness is the point. 